Hi guys, this is Udos and welcome to the Udos show. Today I have a very special guest. His name is Lilo Brancato and you may know him from a Bronx Tale. He's the main guy and he's amazing. He's got a lot of upcoming projects and he's been around and he's got lots to say about everything that happened in his life. There's been a lot of things, ups and downs that we're going to go over. And uh, thank you so much. Lilo, for being here today. I'm so excited to have you on as a guest. And let's just get right into it. So how did you Thank get... you. I appreciate, I appreciate this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you so much. So how did you get into acting and how did you get casted in a Bronx Tale? I mean, it's like one of my absolute like favorite movies. And like I, I told you, like when we were recording that, like I learned my English from like mob movies uh, <laughs> in yeah. Sweden. So I'm over here like... Like you're basically my English teacher too, you know. <laughs> so yeah, uh, how did you get started? Can you just go over everything? Yeah, um, it was just you know I was just at the beach, you know, my uh, summer vacation after tenth grade. I had just finished tenth grade in 1992. It was out, you know, J- uh, July 5th, 1992. Went to the beach with my friends, and they were doing this film. They were doing this film called The Bronx Tale, and I knew friends, and you know, even my cousin read for the part, and you know, it was it was like all over on the radio. They had like posters and like, you know, and I never really put much thought into it. I thought it was like such a long shot that a guy like myself was going to get this opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on the beach that day, um, I was in the water. My brother came to get me, introduced me to a guy who was looking for someone, you know, possibly to play that role. Mm-hmm. And then he gave me a uh, you know piece of paper with the character description. And uh, he liked the way I looked. He said, you definitely could pass for his son. And I had me come in that night because it was a Sunday, but he said, we usually don't, you know, we're usually closed at the Belmont Playhouse in the actual neighborhood where the film took place. So, but he said, I want to see you. He said, I think you look great. And he said, I think you really look right for this. So I never acted before, you know? So I just went there that night, not expecting anything. So at that point for me, it was just like, I got nothing to lose. If anything, I could like leave this, not get the part and still say, yo, you know that, yo, I read for that movie. You know, I could have said that. And that would have been maybe not as cool, but so I went that day and my two friends drove me and I went and there was this guy, Marco Greco. Um, and I wasn't too nervous because it's not like I wanted to do it. So I just went and like, what the hell? That was like my, so he gives me the scene when I was shaving, but in the original script, De Niro was shaving. So I read the scene. He said, memorize it. I went to get him and we did it. And he was blown away. He's like, wow, that was like the best I've ever seen this scene read and then he started you know this was back in the day when you had like VH, vhs tapes so he had a big camera he's got you know with the, with the vhs and he's asking me questions and uh <clears throat> the character Calogero is that's a sicilian name in in english that's charles and my dad was sicilian i speak the dialect and everything it's like much different than italian and uh so that was like a perfect part because I heard like your average person doesn't know the name Calogero, you know, I heard that name the, my father's from a little town in Sicily in the province of Agrigento called Naro. The saint from that town is San Calogero. So I know that name. I was like, wow. You know, just to know that the character's name was that. Yeah. So he kept, you know, he, he asked me about that and I told him I was Sicilian and this and that. So, okay. I didn't think anything of it. I get, we exchanged numbers. They call me the next day from De Niro's from De Niro's people down in Manhattan in Tribeca. So they're like, yeah, we want you to come down and read. I went down there and it was like so many kids there. I was like, so 
so like intimidated and I just kept getting called back and called back and called back and called back. And then it's like less and less and less mm-hmm. to the point where it's just, it's just me. So I would just go there. And then it got to the point where I was like, I must have this part because there's no one here ever. It's okay. only me now. So Robert De Niro told me, he said, tomorrow, I want you to dress like you're going to go to church. He says, we're going to do a screen test, which means they have film cameras and they put you on film. You may look different. Film makes people look different, you know? And I said, okay. So I had black slacks on very, I was very safe with what I wore. I wore black slacks because I was so nervous. Now I was really nervous. Black slacks and a white button down shirt, black shoes, like a waiter. You know, like I, but that's like, I was very, cause I didn't want to overdo it. I didn't want to yeah. be too with the colors. Cause I knew I'd be on, you know? Yeah. So, okay. So I go down and we're at tri- tri- the Tribeca screening room. That was De Niro's, that was De Niro's building. We would usually go up to the seventh floor. He's on the eighth floor, but he calls us up and we walk up the stairs. He can look, but this was that day we were told to meet in the screening room where he screens films, but everybody was sitting. They were reading girls, reading for the girl, for the brother, all the little kids. Everybody was there that day. It was like judgment day. So I'm sitting there with my dad. So the kid who shot Sonny at the end of the movie, he was supposed to be C. That's who they had first. But when they found me, they well later, I'll tell you what happened. So now he comes up to me and he goes, and he says to me, he said, hey, he said, my name is Phil Garbarino. He said, I'm reading for Cologero too. I'm like, what? I got to work now? Like, I thought I had the part. Yeah, you're like, what the hell? Yeah, because I was nervous already. So now it's like, now I'm like 20 times more nervous. So I'm like, oh boy. But it was a long day because Mm -hmm. they went, everybody else did their stuff first. I guess they wanted to save us for the end because it was, you know, bigger, you know, bigger roles in the film. Yeah. So then we, we did the scene where, Sonny thought I put the bomb in his car. So Phil went first. The doors are closed. And Chaz Palminteri was there. He was playing Sonny, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I hear him screaming. Can I curse? Yeah, of course. Yeah. All right. So, so he goes up. <laughs> I hear him screaming from outside the door. Where the fuck did you go with my car? And it's like, <laughs> where the fuck? And I, we hear it. No, no. Like. He's really screaming. Me and my father are like looking at each other, like what, like what, like. So now, event, you know, they're they're done. He walks out. Yeah, his hair's messed up. He his shirt like he had buttons ripped, and, and but I, he did say good luck though, as he was walking by me to go to the bathroom. He said good luck, like he was all like he was like really affected. <laughs> believe me. So then he tells me good luck. So I went in there and. Now I'm expecting this too. So now like the the yeah. the level of anxiety has been lifted and not lifted, it's been raised by a million percent. Because now it's like, not only do I have to like weather this pain, like am I gonna get smacked, but I also have to perform. Like, you know what I mean? This is a this is a very important scene that I have to sell. This yeah. could be the one. This is why we're doing it so late. This is yeah. why you know all this stuff was going through my head. So I did it and uh I mean, they never, they didn't put their hands on me one time, not one yeah. time. So I was like, you know, that was a good thing. But I was like, so I was really, really had my mind, like, like, like really thinking, like, why did they, you know? And uh, it turned out because I talked to De Niro, not right away, but I remember one day, I don't remember, I remembered. And then I said, hey, Bob, remember that time when you guys beat up Phil? And, but then I had to go, and that, right? And he and I said, why didn't you guys do the same thing to me? And he yeah. said, we didn't have to. 
He said, you did what we wanted you to do without us having to do that. Yeah. It's just so funny in my head. Like the way I'm running it in my head is like, they're just beating up this guy on like an audition (laughs) just to get the character out. But it's like so funny because it's like, I I didn't even know that you could do that at auditions. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but you know what? The night that we actually did the scene, like the night we did it. Yeah. Um, I did get smacked because I'm yeah. standing on the sidewalk and next thing you know, the car pulls up and he just like comes charging at me, like comes at me fast. And where the fuck did you go? Bang. He smacks me. He really smacked me. Yeah. And my mother was there. My mother, my aunts, you know, they were right there. Like, you know, they're all old school. So, you know, they love that kind of stuff. Like, you know, so they're just <laughs> sitting there. They're watching that. Right. And these are my, this is my family. These are my relatives. Yeah. They're coming there for a nice night. It was like a Friday night to like come down to Queens. We live yeah. by the Bronx to just come down and like support me. And then to yeah. watch me get smacked around like that. I was like, whoa, yeah. but I got smacked. Bang. Yeah. He had a ring on. I'm not saying it's Chaz's fault. It, you know, it goes with the territory, Yeah. but bang, he smacked me. And I remember he gave me like a nice little, a nice little line from the ring when he went like that. Cause it oh, like, you know what I mean? Yeah the ring but it was like what it was it added to it because i felt it more and i was able to react easier mm. because i had to do less work because i felt yeah. it i yeah. felt like i really you know like i was being attacked so it wasn't something i had to do so but that's just so funny to me in my head they're like in my head i just picture them they're like come on get into character and like yeah, yeah. <laughs> just hitting the yeah. guy like and he's like coming out like he's like good luck <laughs> yeah that's exactly what he said he's still my friend also yeah he's still like a really really good friend of mine phil yeah you know no, but he's it's been just there. so funny yeah he's but been there for me a lot that guy you know yeah real good yeah he seems like a great guy because i saw in other interviews like that he's just like you know he actually been there and he's a good person and he like actually like stuck around as a friend yeah, he definitely did. During yeah. my toughest times. During yeah. my toughest times, you know? Because it's like anybody could be your friend when things are going well. Mm-hmm. But when you're down in the dumps and you have nothing, nothing to offer anyone, that's when you really see. Because you can't offer anyone anything. So let's see who still comes to you. Let's see, let's see who's still by your side. That tells you everything. And then like in situations like that, it really opens your eyes. And then when you get out of that situation, now you know. And then now you weed out what wasn't good or mm-hmm. what wasn't there for you and you keep all the good and yeah. then you are the company you keep and you're you're being a better you know better place in your life with having people like that obviously yeah I think like the whole COVID situation kind of helped me like weed out a lot of people because I had I lost so many people like people passed away and like friends fell off when you actually needed them and you know they kind of showed their true colors and stuff like that so then you kind of like experience like, oh, my God, like now I actually need these friends that I was always there for. And where are they? You know, and they're not nowhere. But like you said, like when things are good, everybody's around, everybody's like hanging out and stuff. So absolutely. I I know exactly what you're talking about. That's the easy part. That's the easy part of being a friend. Yeah. The hard part is making the sacrifice to give up time out of your day to go support someone and be there for someone who can do absolutely nothing for you right now. Yeah. It's like, I, there's nothing I can gain other than, you know, helping my friend and making my friend feel good and making me feel good that I was able to make my friend feel good. Mm-hmm. But that's, you know, that's the most I'm going to get it. But if someone really means that much to you, 
that means a lot to you and you will do that. It, you, it, it's, not, it's not a question. You don't even feel like it's a sacrifice because yeah, it's exactly. like you empathize, you know, my friend is hurting right now. It's like, I have to be there. Like I want to, because you're hurting with them. And you know, if you're there for them, some of that hurt that you hurt for them goes away also. Because yeah. you know, you can control it. This is what friends, this is what being someone's friends about. You know, I think so. like with people like you and me, like we just do it naturally. We don't even think of it as like the step by step process. But then when it actually comes to us, it's like we're always there for everybody. So like, where is everybody when you need them? And they always already think like, oh, this person is like always good or something. I don't know where they get the idea that like, you know, maybe you don't need someone, you know, you don't need a friend or they're not there all of a sudden. I don't know. It's just weird. It's a weird concept. Like, I think it's just natural comes naturally to some people. And then some people, they just look at it as work. Like, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, support when you have support in your life, it makes, it's, it makes a big difference because it's like, it makes the difference between success and failure. Yeah. Support. Yeah. You got some people could put a lot into it but they just don't have the right support. And at the end of the day, you know what? They fall short yeah. but because it's like a lot of times you may, may be, you know, going forward, but then something sets you back. Now, when you don't have that support, it's like climbing a ladder. You can get all the way up and right before you get to the top, you fall mm -hmm. because something happens and you're starting a business or whatever it is. And now you're right up there, but if you don't have the support, when you fall from that high, you're going to fall all the way to the bottom. But if you do have that support, mm -hmm. they can get you, you maybe fall a step or two. So it's much easier to get back on your grind. Cause yeah. it's like, you know what, because of my support, I didn't lose out that much. I only got, I'm only a month behind versus eight months behind of when I started. Now I lost it all. I don't have the capital. I can't, I can't finance this any longer. And because you didn't have the support, it, it makes the difference between success and failure in whether or not you're in recovery with addiction, with so many things. There's mm -hmm. a lot of people. It's not like I was stronger than them, but you know what? Maybe I had a better support system than them. I had a great support system and I still do. My family, my friends, I got a lot of good people in my life, which I'm very fortunate about, you know? So, yeah, no, that's great. Like I like, I love everything that you accomplished because you accomplished so much, but then there's other, like this whole, like other side of everything that happened, like, and it just shows everything that can go wrong. So let's just get back to this. Like, so you did the Bronx, Bronx tale, right? right. And, um, you know, this whole amazing like movie that's like legendary movie ahead of its time with an interracial couple and like this love story and, you know, it's so current right now, it's even now, like this t day and age. But back then it was like a rare kind of. Uh, yeah, it was very forbidden. It was yeah. very forbidden. Um, yeah, the movie definitely tran transcends time. It's something that's applicable now. You can apply it now. You, someone can watch that film. They don't have to be from the 60s to be like, hey, I remember that time. I remember those cars. Those cars and whatever time it took place doesn't mean anything. That's irrelevant in the message that the film is trying to convey. It yeah. just is what it is. It could have taken place anywhere. It's the message, but it happened to take place in that setting. No doubt, definitely a classic film. You know, never realized it would ever be what it is, especially because I didn't want to do it. So it was just like, we did the film, could have had some success, but to be still talking about it the way people do and the way they still support it. 
almost 30 years later is remarkable. It really is. And like you're working with like really great actors and talented people. Like how was that working with like Robert De Niro and like Charles Palmer and Terry? Like especially Robert De Niro, like I'm like a huge fan of his. Like everything he does, I feel like he's done so good at like everything him and El Pacino, for instance. But like how was that like working with him? Like did you take anything away from that experience? Like did you learn something directly just from him? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, remember, he directed that film. Yeah. So it wasn't like he was just someone I was playing alongside where, because, you know, if he's in character, he's not going to talk to me. You know, he's going to want to. But because he's the director, he had to direct me. This is what and he knows this is my, my first thing. So there was a lot of hands on, you know, on his part with me. And I did learn so much and very simple ex- explanations but very, but yet so, so effective, you know, just like some of the things he would say would just make sense because I think sometimes, I don't know, for me, I don't know, when people, when there's two, when there's an explanation and it's just like too wordy and too big, sometimes I don't understand it. The genius, like the way he would explain things in very simple ways, but yet so effective, you know? Yeah. Um, and he had that way about him and I did learn a lot. He always used to say less is more. And he used to say, you know, never, you know, like never do. If you don't feel like doing anything, he said, don't do anything. Doing nothing is better than doing too much. You know what I mean? Especially on film, because film, you know, you see things like film will pick something up bigger than the way it actually was done, the way you actually did it. So you have to learn film. It's not not only being an actor and the performance but also knowing how this is going to translate on film. Mm-hmm. Did I do this too fast the way I moved my head? Should I have done it like that? Because I'm filmed. I may have done it like that, but it's going to look like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? The little yeah. joke, like things like that. But just very subtle things. And I took away a lot, a lot from that experience. And just watching him, watching him in the small role that he had as Lorenzo, the bus driver, um, watching that. Because him directing me, yes, that was very special. But now I'm watching like my favorite actor in the world act. You know what I mean? Yeah. With lights on him and a camera. And I'm watching, you know, the best do it right in front of me before editing and before, you know, the coloring, the film and music. This is raw. This is what it is. That's where I really used to get the rush. Because, you know, you grew up watching this. You know, I grew up with all Italians. I'm, you know, was adopted into an Italian family. (laughs) <laughs> but grew up with all time. So Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, guys like that, God for us, you know, like, yeah. wow, you know, and then to be, you know, like an idol throughout my whole life and then to be right there with him and watching that, that's, or even, you know, Joe Pesci also, because I've seen him in Goodfellas, Raging Bull, because Raging Bull, remember that was, that was a film from 1980. So, you know, but, you know, uh, yeah, that was definitely a great experience. Um, and it got me, you know, it, it, it got me on the right path. You know, I was doing stuff after that. I did a film called uh, Renaissance Man. I don't know if you saw that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With yeah. Uh, Mark Wahlberg was in that. Yeah. Um, Gregory Hines, Danny DeVito, Penny Marshall directed it. Rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Um, that was another great experience. A very, you know, physically demanding one because we did that in South Carolina. We had to actually go through boot camp and all that. And then, you know, after that, I was able to work with, a, uh, with Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman. 
And then I got cast in, uh, you know, in Crimson Tide. And that was awesome Mm -hmm. also. But then it's just like life just became so easy for me after that point. It's like everyone wants to do everything for you. And, uh, you know, without having the experience and having parents that were from another country that never really that don't know about this. So it's like, how, what, how, what do we tell him in this situation? What do we, we don't know. He probably knows more than us in this situation because he's from this country. We're not even from here. So it was like a recipe for disaster. I made, as Chaz Palminteri put it best, some monumentally bad choices. And, uh, you know, and then you just see, you start to, you know, like I said, seeing how easy life is. And you just think because it's like you're on this cloud, almost of invincibility. And you just feel like you're never going to come down off it because it's not like I really worked for it in the beginning. Yeah. It's just like here, here's, 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 here's the lotto. Here's the winning lotto ticket. You know, it's yeah. basically what it is. So, and then it's like, if I was older, you know what I mean? It would have, I would have went about things in a much different way, obviously, yeah. but I wasn't. And, uh, you know, eventually, you know, started, uh, going out five, six times a week, you know, almost, you know, every night, literally started getting to drugs and alcohol. And then I would say by the uh, late nineties, early two thousands, I was a full blown cocaine addict, but then I jumped out of a car one night, a moving car from paranoia from the cocaine. Yeah. I thought, thought my friends were going to kill me. So I jumped out of the back seat going like 60 miles an hour. I still have a scar. I don't know if you see it. Yeah, I see it. Yeah, right there. I jumped out of a car. And if I wasn't as drunk as I was, I would have probably died because I would have I would have probably been stiff and I broke my neck. So the reason why I bring that up is because that's when the pain medication, that's when that started. Mm -hmm. Because of that incident, I was prescribed, you know, the Vicodin because that was popular then. You don't even hear about them anymore, really. But back then they were much bigger. Now it's like Oxy and everything else. So then that whole devil you know what I mean? You know, entered my life and uh, it was just, you know, uncontrollable because it was like cocaine. You got the come down, you got the misery, the paranoia, and then you start taking these pills and you don't experience none of that. So like, yeah. wow, these things are great. But then you discover like you do them like two weeks in a row. And then like two weeks later, one night you just don't have any. And then you go to sleep and you're like, you're like tossing and turning and you're real, yeah. like, what's wrong with me? Because you feel like you're sick, like you have a fever, but it's something a little different. You don't quite know what it is. Mm. Like, what is it? Like, what is this? Like, getting hot flashes. I took my temperature, but my temperature was normal. I'm like, what's what's going on with me? Yeah. And then, and then I discovered. Then I I realized I'm going through withdrawals. So now, once you know that that's what it is, you can easily just go get more, and you know, heal yourself in like two seconds. You know. Yeah. So before before we get into all that, let me just slow everything down and just go over this with you. Because so you basically started doing uh, drugs, right? So you started drinking and drugs and stuff. But like, how did you get introduced to drugs in the first place? Because you were really young when you did A Bronx Tale and all these movies, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I I was drinking. I mean, even like as a little kid, sometimes like New Year's, we drink a little alcohol have some beer and stuff but that never really amounted to anything um until later on but then i was with the kid who shot sonny in a bronx tail he drove me home from the set one night and he had some weed in the car 
-hmm. And I didn't even know what it was. I never smoked. And then he told me what it was. And he said, do you want to smoke? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. I was like, curious. Mm -hmm. So he rolled it up in an easy wider paper. We went and smoked. And I don't even think I got high because I thought I was. Mm -hmm. It was like a placebo, but I didn't really get high. And then on like the next day or the day after on the set, because I had my own apartment. It was like a big apartment because I had like a, a tutor, you know, school because I was going to school too. I had to go to school. It was against the law because I was under 18. Mm -hmm. So they had like a whole school thing set up for me in this apartment. But I used to let my friends use the apartment, the guys from the movie, the guys who played my friends. So I opened the door. I had the key. They had another key. I gave them a key. When I walk in, I smell weed. And they were smoked. The first time I smoked a joint, they had a blunt. So I remember I took like one or two hits because I thought I was high the other night. So I thought I could handle it. Yeah. So I went like that. I remember coughing for like, you know, like 20 seconds. I was very high. I was very high. And then I had to go do that scene. Uh, Is it better to be loved or feared? So it was like, wow. And thank God I didn't have a lot of dialogue in that scene. But you could still like if you watch that scene, I'm not. This is like I'm ashamed to say this. Mm -hmm. Being given this opportunity and doing this during that is like, it's shameful. Like I'm ashamed that that took place like that. And that's like a part of history went down like that. But I I guess that had to happen to for us to be here now. So, but yeah, I mean, but like, just so people understand, how old were you when you got introduced to just the weed? I'm 16. So you're like 16 years old, a teenager. Like this is what all of teenagers pretty much I feel like doing is experimenting with cigarettes or, you know, rebelling against their parents or, you know, they're always doing something, going out, going out with friends, doing things. Right. But now you're at the top of the peak of acting and like success and all this stuff at 16 years old and you get introduced to like drugs well, weed to start with, right? And then eventually you get introduced to like other drugs like cocaine and all this other stuff, which is so easy to like fall into, especially like if you're in the entertainment business or like in Hollywood or New York or like any of the bigger cities. It's like, it's kind of like, it's already there. And yeah, it's easily around. accessible. It's yeah. everywhere. And, it's and not, everybody's you know, doing it. Like everybody's right. doing it. So that's it's the kind problem. of like a social thing, you know? Right. That's And that's the problem. It's not frowned upon. It's yeah. not like somebody's going to look at you and say, wow, look at this guy. They're doing the same things you're doing. Yeah. You know, but then, you know, but then, but then when it comes down to some people are wired one way and some people are wired another way. These people did it. It was fun. They stopped doing it. They got married, had families. It became successful. And you get some people that just couldn't stop everybody else stopped and it's like i'm still doing this it's like two years since i did it you know and then you realize that this is a lot more than i thought it was and then you start to get scared because it's it's something that you can't it becomes more and more out of your control while it still is in your control because who else controls it you right yeah because it's becoming out of control but you're still in control that night when you're out of control to be in control and say, I don't want to do it. Yeah. You right. You could just say, I'm not doing it tonight. And you could go the other way. You're in control, but you're still out of control. It's so crazy. Like it's so, it's such a powerful thing because Mm -hmm. it's right there, but like you can easily just like put the bottle here, but you know, if you do it here, it's just like, it's, 
it's it's like I don't know. It's a spiritual disorder. Yeah, it's like a disorder. Something's wrong inside spiritually, mm-hmm. so it causes us to like reach out for the drink, drugs, gambling, sex, shopping. You know, whatever it manifests yeah. in different ways in different people. But uh, it's a serious thing. It's very yeah. serious, you know. What's so interesting to me is like, how do you even supposed to know all this at 16 years old? Like, so my my scenario, I grew up in Sweden and we like went through school and at school, like they already introduced all this to you, not drugs, but they like basically like explain all of the effects, the scientifics, what it does to your body, like your brain, how it damages everything internally, you know? And then they, they also have like, Uh, you know, people that were addicted to certain drugs, they have every like drug possible, you know, on display. And they basically tell you like, oh, this is someone that used to abuse this kind of drug. This is what they look like now, or this is their experience, you know? So we have a Mm -hmm. whole week of extensive like classes and seminars, like just educating us on uh, drugs every single year. That's important. You know, you get, listen, if you could scare one kid away from doing drugs through these seminars, then you did your job. Yeah. Obviously it's to scare every single one of them away, but you yeah. will get someone, they see that because sometimes it's not what you tell people, but it's what you show them. Yeah. And if they see some guy's face eaten away from smoking meth, they make, you know, chances are pretty, pretty good that they're not going to go smoke meth after they see that. Yeah. Some people, but then some people look at it in a different way. Some people may look at that guy's face, you know, and say, you know what? No, I'm definitely not going to do that. And then someone else, someone else's mentality would be, ah, he just didn't do it right. He didn't do it the right way. And that's why he ended up like that. Because if I did it, I wouldn't do it as much as he did, or I would do it this way, or I would drink more water. You know, some crazy explanation as to why he'll do it better. But, you know, it doesn't work that way. But like, for instance, like if you go through all of that, like, it can help someone to like not want to do it. Right. But that's in Sweden. So like, they don't have that whole system here in the U S right. But they, they should, I think, you know, but then on top of that, like, like I always was like, never wanted to try cocaine, you know, because I was like, I just knew if I try cocaine, I think I would like it because I like like energy drinks and caffeine, you know? So I'm like, I always thought in my head, like, okay, that's like an upper. So you probably end up liking it. So I always like, I will go out with friends and people that I knew or celebrities and they, you know, everybody does that. Like everybody goes off and they do cocaine and you're just like standing there like a, like an awkward person And they always, always offered me and I always said no. Right. But like in my head, I was like, if I didn't go through that whole class thing in Sweden, I would have totally just taken the bait. And good, it worked. See, it worked for you. But at the end of the day, you say you're, you know, you're the trust me, they're more awkward than you. You feel like the awkward person. Mm -hmm. They feel more awkward around you and they wish they were you. But you know what? It, sometimes it gets to a point, like once you drink the alcohol, see like where marijuana has a different, an opposite effect to where it gives you that deep thinking, that consequential thinking to where you say like, if I do something now, the, you know, the consequences will be this, this, and possibly this. So you know what, maybe I'll hold off. I got a business meeting, but then with, you know, with alcohol, you have a diminished capacity. It just takes everything away. Your guard goes down and you will do, you know, you will do the cocaine. 
You yeah. just swore to yourself all week. You hadn't done it since last weekend. Yeah. And you swore to yourself. You know what I mean? This week, I'm not going to do it. But once you drink alcohol, everything changes. Then you say, oh, I'll start next week. It's just so crazy what it does. It's just like you feel it. It was yeah. in your control 20 minutes ago. Yeah. But then it feels like you just feel it like slip away. Mm-hmm. And now it's like you're a totally different person with a totally different mentality. And just bang. And then then you're off to the races. Yeah. You know? It's kind of like in my mind, it's so people can understand how like um, the mentality kind of works is like, let's say, for instance, if you're on a diet and you've been doing really good and working out every day, then you like go with a bunch of friends and they're all eating this delicious food and you're just sitting there. Right. <laughs> you're going to want to eat that food because it's like right there in front of you. Right. It's just so tempting, like looking at you and you already had a taste of it before. So now, you know, like, oh, this is going to be delicious, you know? So yeah. it's like the same kind of concept, but like right. had this high or whatever, you know? Yeah. But you know what, though, if you like, like if you think about the way it is and just the way life is, mm-hmm. we're always going to endure some kind of pain. Yeah. You know, and. But the, 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 luckily for us, we get to choose which pain it is, okay? You have the pain of discipline or you have the pain of regret, okay? So now discipline, like that's a conscious effort. We make the conscious effort to be disciplined, okay? Mm-hmm. To not do the things we don't be, to not do the things we shouldn't be doing, even though those are the things that we would rather be doing, okay? Mm-hmm. But like whether or not we eat right or whether or not we go to sleep early, It's a conscious effort, but it's in the present, okay? It's still here. It's in the present. So now I can make that choice. This is where the pain comes in, okay? Do I go to sleep early and wake up tomorrow refreshed because I have a big day? Or do I not have the discipline and and do what I got to do and then not be prepared the next day and blow everything that I worked for? You know what I mean? Yeah. Or do I eat this food? You know what I mean? Even though I've been doing good and I know it's got a lot of salt in it. And I know when I go to the beach tomorrow, I'm going to be full of water because I yeah. ate all this salt. So <laughs> yeah. now it's like, but this is what, it, this is like, so now it's like, have the discipline to not give in. Okay. Because the next day, if you did, now you've just, you've just slipped into the pain of regret. And the reason why you regret is because you didn't have the discipline. Okay. So now with regret, you can't do anything about that. It's yeah. done. Okay. Yeah. Now you're on the beach. You look like a beached whale sitting on the beach after you ate all that food. And then it's like, I, I would have chose the pain of discipline and went to sleep early and not ate like a slob. I'd be looking like a, but that's just a, a simple, silly analogy yeah. for what I'm trying to say. But exactly. discipline is in the present. Do we, do we, do you have the discipline or not? Because when it goes to regret, you had, you, there's, there's no more option. It's done. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. So basically you ended up doing drugs and then, you know, you're at the peak of your career and you're also doing the drugs and, you know, you think you can do both. Right. Right. And basically Mm -hmm. what happens in your life that you're just like, you know, everything kind of falls apart. Well, you know, as I, you know, as I said, I jumped out of the car and that's when the pain pills started. Um, so I met this girl in like 2003. I was heavily addicted to cocaine at that time. And I was using pain pills, like 20 a day. I was an addict. 
10 milligram uh, hydrocodone, which is like Vicodin, mm. the 10 milligram, I was taking 20 of them, sometimes even 40. I would take more at night. So <clears throat> met this girl. She lived not too far from me. Um, she was off, you know, she was going to college. Summer vacation, she worked at the gym I went at, went to, and she became my girlfriend. So it became a lot easier because she lived alone with her sister and her father lived downstairs. So it became a lot easier for me <clears throat> to do drugs and, you know, do all this stuff. So everything just started getting worse and worse and worse. Mm. And she was actually going to school. She was, uh, she was going to school for biology. She was pre-med. She wanted, she was going to want to be a doctor. And then my addiction really spiraled out of control. So it got to the point where she didn't want to be with me anymore. She said, like, I got to study and I'm losing focus. And when you're going through that, you don't, that doesn't make sense to you. It's yeah. more about you. Like, how could you do this to me? But it's like, this girl's like studying to like, want to become something in her life. But, you know, I was just so, I was just so clouded and just, you know, I'm just really, really sad. It was a really dark time of my life. And when I moved back home, my addiction was just like out of control. I was the fall of 2005. And uh, she just didn't want to be with me. I was heartbroken over this, using more drugs. So then I became friends with her father, who lived downstairs, as a reason to go by the house without her or her sister calling the cops, because it was bad, you know, got really bad toward the end. Yeah. And uh, I became his friend. And then, uh, you know, he was like already in prison a few times and uh, he drank and he did drugs also. We used to do heroin together. We used to go to the Bronx and get heroin. We never shot it. We used to snort it. Mm -hmm. But he was like my boy. He was like my friend. So we went we went out one night, December 10th, 2005. Um, we got together late. I remember I picked him up. It was already like one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. We went to a strip club in the Bronx that uh, my friend used to run the place <clears throat> before we went there we went and got some crack on the street we smoked in the car on the way to the strip club we parked in the back we went in the strip club we went around the metal detector we went around it because my friend ran the place and he said let them around that's important yeah. you'll you'll find out later why yeah. yeah so now we go in this place we're hanging out and now we're starting to get like dope sick so now we wanted to get more we get back in the car. We drive to the Bronx. We go see the dealer that I knew. He said he didn't have any more. There was a guy who lived the Bronx Hill, the little kid. Yeah. His sister was my first love. I know there's a lot of girlfriends in this story. But, <laughs> but, uh, He's a popular guy, you know? <laughs> yeah, but, 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 but not even that, but they're from different, like, different eras in yeah. my life. Yeah. This was my first love. She was the little kid's sister. Yeah. So, through her, I met the next door neighbor who was this Vietnam veteran and he used to give me pills when I was a kid, Valium, because they used to give him everything, you know, because he was a Vietnam veteran. So he was able to get all that stuff easily. Yeah. He died. Um, so I said, let's go to his house because I knew he had Tylenol or codeine. We just get something to not be sick. And then we live to fight another day. That yeah. was my mentality. So we did go there. You know, I hadn't seen him in a while. I hadn't seen him in a while. But like he, our friendship and our relationship was one where, you know, like you don't see somebody in a while. Then it's like, yo, it's like nothing. Like there was no time that passed. It yeah. was like, it would have been like one of those. Cause like, you yeah. know, so we went to his house. I was banging on the, you know, I tried, you know, I was banging on the, on the window and making, try to go through the garage because I used to go in through the garage when I was a kid. 
he would always leave his garage open. If I would fight with my girlfriend in the middle of the night, he would always leave the door open for me. And sometimes I would just go sleep on his couch. And then he would say, what's the matter? Trouble in paradise? So he would give me like a Valium or something to calm down. So this is what was going on. So this is why like when I tell the story and what's going to happen, people don't believe it. Like I'm some like was some mastermind of some burglary. This was a guy I knew when I, like from my formative years when I was younger mm-hmm. and couldn't get his attention. I did break the window, but I'm a junkie. I was a junkie. I wasn't, you know what I mean? Breaking the window doesn't mean you're, you know, I break the window. Obviously it made a lot of noise. It's a red little residential, you know, nice neighborhood in the Bronx called Pelham Bay, Pelham Bay Park. Yeah. So I break the window. <clears throat> I break the window and I'm going, Kenny, 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 making all this noise. Mm-hmm. So eventually I could even, I couldn't get his attention. So I was, we were about to leave. I was with the other guy, the girlfriend's father. Yeah. Who I was with presently. Yeah. I was leaving to go back to the car. He wanted to use the bathroom right before. So as I'm walking away, this is when I heard somebody say, don't move. So I went like that. And when I did that, I was shot. Mm. Bullets started flying at me. So it was like, boom, boom. And I got one, one, two. And then one like grazed me right here. So I have no clue who this guy is. It happened so fast because like I had to turn around for it, you know? Mm. And it's like, this was like 530 in the morning too. It's not like it was like, you know, 530 in the morning. You don't expect that to happen at that hour. If it was eight o'clock at night and you're on private property and some guy could be watching TV and he sees you through his window, I could see that, right? Five in the morning. Yeah, f- yeah, but it's like the fact that you even got shot in the middle of the night is crazy. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you think? Right. Yeah. So, so, yeah, that happened. So I'm like, I didn't, like, I guess my adrenaline kicked in and I was just like, I looked down and I like clenched my gut and I could see blood like hop because it was so cold out. It was yeah. December 10th, 2005. It was so, so cold out. It snowed the night before. It was like freezing with the wind and everything. It was like single digits. So the blood's hot. It's coming out of your body, which is at least 98.6. So this blood has got like steam on it. I'm just sitting there looking at this guy. I couldn't believe it happened. I didn't know why. I didn't know why. But I just stood and looked. And then I just started walking away, like hobbling away. And as I was down down the sidewalk to go where I was parked, I hear additional gunfire. Mm. I hear more gunshots from the gun which I thought was the one that hit me because it sounded similar. And then I heard boom, like a real loud bang. Yeah. I make it to the corner. You know what the L is? The L, the L, you know, like in the Bronx, you know, they got those trains that are in the street, but up high. Yeah. Yeah. That's called an L meaning elevated, elevated train, but they're called the L. Mm -hmm. So I'm under the L on Westchester Avenue and Arnold Place because I went to get my car because I was strong enough to go get, because I heard screaming and I heard gunshots. So I wanted to pull the car around to go back and get my friend because I didn't know what happened. It just, everything happened so fast. Mm-hmm. But when I went to the car, then I got so weak because I lost a lot of blood that I collapsed under the thing. Then next thing you know, I see cops coming and they were like, and they recognized me. They're like, you know, just the kid from the Bronx tale. You know, and I'm just like slumped against the corner. So then he was like, you know, who who shot you? Who was it? Who who the F shot you? And then he goes, was it him? And I look and I see 
my ex-girlfriend's father. Yeah. He's walking down the street. He's got a gun in his hand and he's all shot up. He got shot up like seven or eight times. And he's walking down the street and the cops spot him. So they start screaming, don't move, don't move. He puts the gun down. And next thing you know, ambulance came and the whole thing. And then I thought I was going to die that night. I made it in the hospital. I was like under for a while. Mm-hmm. Not that morning. The morning after, I remember somebody waking me up, a doctor, and say, he said to me, he said, uh, he said, are you proud of yourself? He showed me the cover of the paper. He goes, hey, he goes, hey, buddy, because you're proud of yourself. Look, you and your friend killed a cop. And I was like, literally, when that happened, I literally cried. Because I'm, I'm like handcuffed to the bed. And, and like, there's, it's like all over the TV. It's like the biggest oh news. God, yeah. It's like the biggest news around. It's everywhere. There's cops everywhere. It's like, and I'm in like Jacoby Hospital in the Bronx. And it was just like mayhem. And we were like probably the most hated guys in the world at that point. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but, uh, you know, um, you know, eventually but, got charged with murder. Went yeah. sat in Rikers Island for three years. The first year I was still getting high, but by November, you know, I was getting morphine at church. Um, by November, I overdosed it myself. Mm. Um, I was, and, uh, and then I was still doing it, but then I had my friends come see me on an attorney visit mm. and something just snapped in me on that, that night, November 18th, 2006. And that was the last time I ever got high. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I felt like it was a modern day miracle. I remember coming to the visit, feeling one way. Then when I left, it was like something had been lifted for like a miracle. My mentality just changed. Like I never want to get high again. And then like when it was around after that, it just became easy. Like yeah. that obsession to want to use, it just went away. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. So like, what do you think happened when when that was like a pivotal point because you just decided to leave all of that stuff behind and just move forward and like that's in the past now, right? So what in your mind like made you click? Was there like a specific thing that like helped kind of uh change your mind about doing drugs and all that kind of stuff? Or well, I already see like the problem was I already knew what to do, mm-hmm. but I wasn't doing what I knew. It's like, I know, I know what I have to do to get off drugs, but I just wasn't doing it. Mm-hmm. And I've heard people over the years, Lilo, you got to stop. You got to do this. You got to do this. And, you know, you would think after somebody dies, you know, over, you know, because, you know, I take, you know, you know, some responsibility for what happened because of my addiction, someone else is dead. Yeah. That's, that's pretty, you know, that's a very, and you would think you know, that's as serious as it gets. And you would think you would stop after that, but you don't. And you realize, and I was still getting high in jail. Mm-hmm. And then when they came to see me on the uh, attorney visit, my friend Corey Rabin said to me, he said, like, what's wrong with you? You got all these people. We love you. We want to see you beat this case. And we're supporting you. And he said something. He said, but you know what? Maybe one of these days you're not going to have us here anymore. Maybe we're not going to believe in you as much. That's what he said. And I just, I just, wow. Just like, like yeah. I felt it throughout my whole body. Because yeah. that, it made me think like, as bad as this is, think about how much worse it could be if I didn't have all these people with me. And uh, I don't know, it just woke me up and that was it. I just had like an epiphany and it was just my life had entered something else at that point and forever. And I still feel that way. It's not like I, to this day, like go, like I have obsessed over doing drugs, but I know I shouldn't do it. 
Mm. I don't even think about that stuff. It's just a part of my life that's just will never be. It's gone. I've learned so much from it. Um, And, you know, thank God, you know, thank God it's like that, you know. So my other question is, what's so confusing about all this and how the law works? Because I don't, I'm not really sure about this specific, uh, like, situation with you and how the law worked in your case and everything. But what's so confusing about this is this guy, he's a police officer that's off duty. He shoots you and you just go around the corner. But then your uh, ex-girlfriend's dad, who has the gun, pulls the trigger you know, so, and he shoots the other guy too. And in self-defense, the guy shoots, uh, you know, the off-duty police officer, but then you get charged for murder. This is where it gets confusing. Like how, that, that makes no sense to me because you didn't pull the trigger. And then right. the, the whole case is that he's shooting, you know, and he shot right. you. So you didn't even shoot the guy. <laughs> like what is happening? You know? So well, how did you end up with murder when it's, you know, clearly you didn't pull the trigger and you're the one who got actually shot, if anything? Well, <clears throat> um, you know, and it's like there's different kinds of murder. There's the where there's called intentional murder, where you intentionally kill someone. But then what they charged me with was called felony murder. OK, it means when you attempt to commit, you commit in furtherance or in immediate flight therefrom, a felony, a non-participant is seriously physically injured, it's on you. So this is what felony murder is. They're saying that, well, in our situation, a non-participant died during the commission of a burglary. Okay, I got convicted of attempted burglary, but remember what I said, whether you attempt to commit or commit in furtherance or in immediate flight therefrom. So because of this felony, and I think they used to, I learned a lot about the law. Yeah. I think they used to teach, I think it was Mr. Breaks, murder, robbery, burglary, rape, arson, no wait, breaks, K, uh, kidnapping and escape. Anyone breaks, Mr. Breaks, that was, what, that was the acronym for all the felonies to be considered for felony murder. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, this is, this is a perfect, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a question, right? This was a real case in Washington Heights in New York City. Two guys walk into masked with masks on. They walk into a bodega to rob the place. Mm-hmm. Okay. The store owner has a gun behind the counter, but his gun is legal. He has it for this exact reason to protect his place of business. Mm-hmm. So now these two, these two masked gunmen come in. He grabs his gun. Boom. He shoots, but he doesn't hit one of the kids. He misses. The bullet hits the wall, and it ricochets outside, and it kills a little girl. Okay? Yeah. So now, who gets charged with that murder? The... I don't know who did. <laughs> like, I don't know how this works. Would it be okay. the burglars or... Right. The yeah. robbers. Yeah. That's felony murder. They didn't shoot the little girl, but they're going to get charged with killing her because of the robbery. If I didn't rob you, he didn't shoot the gun. She's not dead. So now that's felony murder. If you didn't, or even like if you go rob, yeah, if you rob an old lady, say you rob her, you go rob an old lady's person. She has a heart attack and she dies Yeah, because she's afraid. 
that's you don't like you think that's all right she died she had a heart attack it's not my fault. it is your fault because oh, you I scared see. her and that's felony murder so okay. they're gonna that hit you sense. with yeah they're gonna hit you with like the same amount of time as if like you actually shot somebody you're gonna get 20 25 to life for something just like that so i was very very you know very lucky i had a great attorney joe tacopina Still also my friend to this very day. Tremendous. Mm. Tremendous. He's a he's a legal bulldog. Like if you see him in the courtroom, he's like no joke. He was A-Rod's attorney, Meek Mills. He's, he's a big name. And and in my case, it was tough because you had the whole you had the whole law enforcement presence in the courtroom. So that would be intimidating for any attorney to have to deal with that. But Joe is strong, very yeah. knowledgeable. He worked, he, he, he was great. So basically, you got murder uh, charge and everything, or fe- murder fe- felony or something. Felony like murder. Mur- yeah, it felony was murder. First, it was basically murder in the second degree. Yeah. So basically, you got that. And now, how many years did you end up getting? Well, I sat in Rikers Island for three years, which was New York City jail. Fight the case. Mm-hmm. We got a case severance. I went to trial. I got arrested December tenth, two thousand five. I went to trial November seventeenth, two thousand eight. And I went all the way to December 22nd. I was found not guilty of murder in the second degree, two counts of burglary, one count of attempted burglary with serious physical injury to a non-participant. But no. then they did convict me of a burglary, attempted burglary in the first degree with serious physical injury to a non-participant. The, the, the one they didn't convict me of is the attempted burglary with the gun, but serious physical injury because we caused serious physical injury while attempting to burglarize the home. So they gave me 10 years for that. Um, I already did eight years. I mean, I already did three years waiting, awaiting trial. So when I was to go upstate, because that's, it's a violent crime, you're supposed to do 85%. So after doing three, I had five and a half left remaining on a 10 year violent sentence. I went upstate, uh, First, one of the first things I did, I was uh, very interested in getting my education. I never even had a high school diploma. It wasn't so much that I wasn't dedicated more because I was getting into the acting. And I looked at it like, let me focus on this because this may never, this may, this I may lose. It may never come back. This I can always go back to that. I, I can't. So that's why I chose that. Yeah. So, so yeah, I went to, uh, you know, I mean, I got to say, you know, like, I, I just think of all, like, you know, all these, uh, you know, all, I just think about everything that I did in my life and just all these mistakes and these stories, you know, but so going upstate five and a half, I got my, I went and got my GED right off the bat. And then I enrolled in school in college in uh, Norcross, Georgia, a school called uh, Ashworth College. It was like a degree program. So like, I was really going to school. I paid for it out of my own pocket. And uh, I got an associate's degree in business and I learned a lot. And I knew that for me, that that would be a good idea because I knew people when I came home would want to hear my side of the story since they've only heard one side up till now with me being locked up in the newspapers and this and that. Mm -hmm. So I just knew that when I did get my chance to tell my side of the story, I wanted to be able to articulate it the right way and to be able to really sound in a way which contradicts whatever perceptions people had of me based on everything that they read. I wanted, you know, my goal was to make people say like, ah, maybe this guy, maybe this guy 
maybe he didn't do anything or maybe so yeah so what was the biggest thing that you like took away from this whole like experience of you being on top then you know drugs and then next thing you know you're in prison now it's like what what do you think the whole purpose of all this was like for you to go through all of these like situations and things well one thing that i you know <clears throat> no matter how bad life gets it always gets better or your ability to deal with it will get better because it's like sometimes things in life sometimes there is no rainbows at the end or there's sometimes that just doesn't happen in life mm-hmm. sometimes we wait for something and wait for something and you know what it's never going to come or it's never going to happen yeah but then like when you're away in a prison cell and you're there for all those years you have nothing to get your mind off of anything all you do is obsess and think about what just went wrong or what news your lawyer just gave you like one time he told me they found a bloody glove on the windowsill now i'm thinking to myself any chance i had now it's out the window mm. i didn't put that I, that's not even my glove i got shot up there so that's telling me they're not playing fair and they're putting gloves on a windowsill that's yeah. the one they say that i try to go so now i'm like this was like memorial day weekend of 07 like i was broken yeah i just i thought i had a you know glimmer of hope and i was fighting this case and then when i heard that it was like oh I got my nothing. god yeah, if yeah. I can't beat the burglary, then they charge me with the murder. If you knock out the felony, the felony murder's gone. But you can also, I did get convicted of the felony, but I beat the felony murder because we used what was called the affirmative defense. There's all these little intricacies with the law. Yeah. But it was it was definitely in my best interest to learn all this. Yeah. Because once learning it, then you could say, okay, because now you can help your lawyer help you. Well, say, hey, Joe, you know. Yeah, this may have been the case that night, but from what I read, we can apply it this way and use the affirmative defense because I didn't have a gun, so I didn't know. And you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's like, and it's like, and learning is beautiful. It's beautiful. You know what I mean? You never know when you're going to have to, you know, call back for this and go back and look for this information. You never know when you're going to need it, you know? So. No, yeah, like, that's, that's just, like, amazing that you, like, actually went and got a degree and, like, while you're in there, because I was like, what do you do with, like, all that time that you have in there? Like, I would have, like, went crazy with, like, thinking about everything and rerunning everything in my mind over and over and over and over and try to figure out, like, how did I end up here, you know? Like, so, like, I would have probably, like, drove myself crazy, like, doing that, you know? So it's absolutely. No, you definitely, the, the first three years were really tough because I didn't know what my, what my fate was going to be. Yeah. So I kind of like was really scared because I could have went away and got convicted 25 to life. And I would yeah. have never, ever saw my parents alive out here again. Yeah. So that was, you know, just thinking of it that way was really scary to me. <clears throat> but once I got to upstate and I had been, you know, acquitted of all the biggest changes, now it's like after all the scare and all the worry, five more years. So what, you know, so my mindset, like I felt like a really blessed person that time was easy. It kind of offset that I even was doing time because I thought I was going to go away for decades. Yeah. But then it's like, that's it. Five more years. And I go home. Yeah. Five more years. Well, five and a half. But then I got six months taken off because I got a degree. So I was eligible for a time cut. So when I went home, I got released. I was supposed to get released July 1st, 2014. I got released 
uh, New Year's Eve because yeah. January 1st is the holiday. So they don't move people on a holiday. So yeah, then I got home, you know, reporters at the house, you know, New Year's. and But let me tell you, it was nice to see everybody in the beginning. But then when all that, you know, when all that dissipated and subsided and it was, you know, then it was like I did a lot of damage. And I just saw the way a lot of people, like I saw like, I saw people, like I saw this guy one time. We were in the sandwich place in Bronxville, New York. Very affluent, very affluent neighborhood. And I seen this guy. He was holding his daughter's hand. She's here, right? And I'm there. So he's waiting online, waiting online, and then he just, you know, cheats them over, right? Mm-hmm. He sees me, okay? Sees me. He grabs his daughter's hand. He pulls her, puts her on the other side. Like he didn't want her on. Because, you know, because it's like what the press created. Yeah. Like, as far as people are concerned, I am a cop killer. You know what I mean? This is what people think because they believe what they read. Yeah. And you have no idea how much that affected me, how much that hurt me. Like thinking to myself, like I would never in a million years hurt that kid. Like if anything, I would get hurt for that kid. Yeah. Exactly. And it's like, I can't believe how powerful this is. Yeah. This is not a joke. And, you know, like it's just really just, you know, think of doing movies and being up here. And now it's like you're slapped with a very harsh reality. You thought prison was bad. Some of this in the beginning was worse because in there you knew where your next meal was coming from. Your pants get ripped. You put a state shop. You fill out a shop. Tell them what pants you need, what size. You get them like in a day or two. Yeah. You got heat. You got everything. You don't got to worry about working. You know, at one point I had a lot of money and then I come home. I had like, I had a few thousand to my name. Just from money that people gave me from for coming home, because after I paid all my like tickets with my car, my lights, because no cop was going to help me. Yeah. Once they saw it was me when I went to court in the city, and then the ones the local tickets. <laughs> once they saw. Oh. oh my god! I'm okay. so sorry about that. No, it's okay. So <laughs> once they say what? Uh, once, once they, they saw. Once they saw that it was me, mm-hmm. you know, like when I was in Yonkers, I thought I was going to be able to pay the tickets. All the cops showed up and these are tickets from like 2005. So I spent all this money. I spent thousands, yeah. thousands. Just on tickets. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like- it was like a really rough time, but you know what? I stood strong and I could have easily went back and got high and yep. did all of that. But, you know, I just knew that I was so blessed to even have my freedom again. And I thought, like, is this really what I want to do with another chance at life? Yeah. Like a lot of people die. They yeah. would have got killed or they would have went away forever. None of that happened to me. Mm-hmm. So it's just like I could see the plan unfold. I could just see it unfold. Yeah. yeah I mean, I got little parts here and there and film and stuff like that. But it was different kind of attention that I was receiving on social media yeah. because like I was posting more stuff, you know, when I first went on social media, more stuff for me working out and showing like that I'm healthy, a different person. Mm-hmm. And it was so surprising how many people reached out mm-hmm. to say like, wow, that inspires me so much because I know where you came from and mm-hmm. to be there now. And that's like, and the bigger your following gets and you see these people like, you know, these people that look up to you and support you, 
because you inspire them. It's almost like in a way, like they kind of feed off what you're doing for themselves to succeed in what they're trying to do. So then yeah. you realize like, wow, I have something special because let's face it, Bronx, Bronx Tales iconic. It's classic. Mm-hmm. You know, C was like a great character. He's yeah. like, you know, so it's like, this is C, this is somebody who, you know, we've watched on TV. We love this movie. We've seen this guy, this kid fall from grace, but he's back now with something really like a real message, really something important to tell us because of what he went through. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Because I realized how important that is. You got to use that the right way. And yeah. I realized what a powerful thing it is because if you go off the cliff, the next guy's going to go off the cliff with you because you know what I mean? That, so now it's like, whoa, now it's like, I got a responsibility. It's like, I'm resp- like, you almost feel like you're responsible. And it was like, it's such a beautiful symbiotic, you know, we mutually benefit, mutually ben- you know, benefit from each other because yeah. it's like a lot of these people think like, Lilo, bro, I love you, man. Thank you for what you do and stuff like that. But it's like, bro, or, you know, or, you know, you do the same thing for me. You don't realize like when you come into my life and now that I know that, you know, like I know that you, you know, experiencing things that difficult things that I went through. And now I kind of, kind of maybe know how to help you. I want to help you. Mm-hmm. I want to help you because I think about what my parents went through. They were helpless. They don't know nothing about this. And I'm saying, damn, I wish I had somebody like that in my life that could have steered me the right way. So I take it very, very serious. It's not a joke. It's not a joke. Like that comes before anything. I could be wherever, but if somebody messages me about that, that's very serious. So it just got, it made me so much stronger because every time it's like that extra layer of strength to wait, it makes you like, like, like a rock. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like so, so strong. Like, and you feel like in a way where like you're liberated, like, it takes you further away from the addictive components of, you know, it takes you further away to where like God has something very, very special in store for me. And you just see it unfold more and more and you believe it because you stuck it out for this long. So now you're starting to see the fruits, the beautiful fruits of everything you worked for. So it's like all the motivation you need in the world. So someone took notice on social media and said, hey, like, you know, we see a lot of people, they love you, they look up to you, and you're inspiring a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Why don't you do that for us? So then I was working for a, a health company called Amethyst Health, but uh, that was back in uh, Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. What happened? Oh, <laughs> I lost you for a second. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the company. owner, one of the owners of the company is yeah. my What was the friend, name of the company? Bro- Sorry. Well, that, it was Amethyst Health. Okay, Amethyst. But my friend Steve Barone, he was an owner there. Mm-hmm. But then he he got he bought his own company, started his own company called More Life Recovery, and that's where I am now. I don't know if you follow me on Instagram, but the yeah. videos that I do, I wear the More Life the hoodie. Yeah. And the, the basically was a More Life. We give you more choices so that you can have more life. And I'm like, it's you know, I get great title there. I'm director of public relations. <clears throat> I do a group once a week. I do my videos and I really, really love it. And it keeps me so plugged in. You know, it's great people over there and it's where I need to be. Yeah. <clears throat> it's where I need to be because two of the biggest enemies of an addict are 
too much free time and complacency. Once you start getting too comfortable in your recovery and you start being careless, like you, you used to not go to these places mm-hmm. because you knew they were dangerous. <clears throat> but now it's like, I'm good. Two years later, you know, yeah. I haven't gotten high. I'm good. So now you start going to the bar. I'm yeah. not going to drink. And maybe you don't drink for like the first four or five times. You yeah. drink water, then one, one night, and then it all comes back. Mm-hmm. So that's why you got to stay plugged in. You got to feed the good dragon because that's why you got to be around like a support team that like you to stay on the path, basically. Right. And keep feeding you what you need to be fed for that part of you to get bigger. If Mm -hmm. I'm feeding you stuff and I'm nurturing you with beautiful things like, yo, brother, I got you. Or let's go do let's go rock climbing or let's go to church or let's go volunteer to help these kids or let's go give out T-shirts or let's go do that. There's a place inside you where that comes from. Right. And once you start feeding that part and you do those things, that place inside you starts taking over the other places to where it starts knocking out the evil. Well, you know, there's always be that mm-hmm. when you least expect it. It'll knock some of that out and you'll just be filled with the right things. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. But that can happen with the opposite. Also, if you're going out every night and drinking and doing drugs, now you're feeding the beast. You're feeding the other side of you. You know, this is very important. I know a talk has to be, you know, like for me, I need to keep saying it because even though I'm sober and I just told you that I'm good, I don't, I don't feel like I have temptation. Mm -hmm. I know better. I know that this illness, this, this spiritual disorder is cunning, baffling and powerful. So when you least expect it, it could be right in front of you. And now you're faced with a, a tough decision. Yeah. Now you're faced with a tough decision because you put your hands down. That's why you got to always, you know, boxing supposed to protect yourself at all. You protect, right? That's the rule. Yeah. Protect yourself at all times. That's the same thing with addiction. Protect yourself at all times. It takes that one time, that one car ride, right? Everything's cool. You think you take that one car ride, your life may never be the same again. You may see the wrong person at the wrong time. You take that one little hit, your life is done. You know, yeah, what's so very- cool about your story is like you went through so many different experiences. It's like you have three different lifetimes of experiences of things that happen. So you experience being at the top, working with the top actors and people. And then next thing you know, like you get introduced at a young age to drugs. And then next thing you know, you're like high on drugs. And now you're like going harder on drugs. And then before you know it, you're just hanging out like at the wrong place wrong time and next thing you know now you're in prison you know so it's like and and what's even crazier like which I'm like super proud of you and I'm like of all this like you went through all that and it would be so easy to just come out or be in prison or come out or whatever and still kind of feel bad about oh my god I had all of these great things and you know uh, try to get back into the drugs, right? But you chose to not do that. You stayed on the path and now you're even helping other people not to make or try to help them not to make those type of decisions because you you were basically showing people how in one instant everything can just go the other way. So right. and I've had that I've had that happen twice in my life on both on opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah. Like 
how my life changed. Like when they found me on the beach that day. Yeah. Boom. Changed like into something totally huge and different, like overnight. Like, yeah. whoa. Okay. For the better. And then December 10th, 2005, I go out. Boom. Now it changed my life for the worse. You know, yeah. now it's like what I was told by my grandmother. It takes a second to get into trouble, but a lifetime to get out of it. Okay. So now it's like, that's exactly the first thing I thought about. Wow. This just happened in like a second or two, but I know this is going to be gold. This is going to be something that I'm going to deal with for the rest of my life. And I still do every day to, to some degree it's, it's mentioned or I think about it and you know, it's, it's, it's a horrible thing. It really, I mean, you know, it really is a horrible thing what happened. It's not something that ever goes away, you know, ever goes away. Yeah. So have you noticed like in your life, if you look at it, how you're capable, you're like a very special person because you're really capable of making the impossible possible, whether it's good or bad. So you made the impossible possible by like doing the whole Bronx tale and getting that part and this whole career and this whole life. And then your attention went another direction. And then you again made the impossible possible by going into the right, I mean, the wrong direction kind of thing, you know? Right. So you're, you're a person that have literally like anything you put your energy and mind into, you move it to that direction, whether you know it or don't know it. So it's, it's very cool if like you actually know that you have these like powers. It's almost like a superpower because you, you literally, if you put your attention to something, you multiply it by millions, either direction. Right. It's, yeah. You know, it's, it, to me, I, I, I describe that in one word, resilience. I just never give up. Yeah. Because now with the wisdom that I've acquired over the years, as bad as things get, like I said, they get better or sometimes they get so bad because God's trying to tell you, this is not for you. Even if it's something good that you think you're doing, you're like, you're missing the cues, bro. I'm throwing signs out there all the time. Yeah. And you're not noticing them. So maybe if I let something really bad happen, you know, because you didn't notice anything else that I did, maybe you go ahead in the direction, which I know you'll really thrive and really prosper, you yeah. know? So it's like, okay, I didn't get the part in this show that I wanted or this movie. It's not a big deal. I have my freedom you know, financially, you know, whatever, you know, it's cool. You know what I mean? It wasn't meant for me. Maybe God's saying you're still not ready for that. I still think if you get into those mainstream big films and you do that, maybe you might end up where you were or, you know, who knows, Yeah. you know, but um, you know, I still love to do it though. You know, I'm, I, I, I get a rush from acting and it doesn't yeah. necessarily have to be on some huge set. For me, it's more about the work. Um, I got some stuff that I, some real stuff that I did. Um, I could send you, we shot this teaser for this movie that we did called Sleepyhead. I don't know. Do you do that on your show where you show like a little clip? We don't really, uh, well, I don't really show the clips. but Okay, I that's fine. That's fine. I'll put the link in the description. So anything you have that you want to show people, like just send it all to me and I put it in the description so everybody could go like and click on everything and look at it. But basically it's called Sleepyhead and then you made Sleepyhead, yeah. It, it, it takes place... Uh, it takes place takes place in hell. It's actually a really, really cool story. I mean, it's a local guy that wrote it, and we had a mutual friend, and uh, that's something else. We had an idea. It was on paper. Mm-hmm. We shot the scene. 
the scene's really good. Trust me when I tell you, when you see it, you're going to get chills. Yeah. It's that good. And uh, so we were able to entice some investors. We put the film together and we shot it in the month of November. And I worked really hard on it because, you don't, you know, we had we didn't have a huge budget. We had, you know, we had some money. But when you don't have a huge budget, you got to really work hard because it's not like you have the liberty or the freedom to be able to shoot one scene in one day. It's like you have this budget. <clears throat> this much money needs to be allocated to this day for this reason, this day for this reason. Yeah. So there's not much margin for error. So yeah. it's like but when you're working on a big, you know, big studio film, you know, it's like, but you learn from those big films as well, but some of the smaller, because you don't have all the luxuries as the big ones. So you kind of like have to improvise with certain things, but you learn and you learn. And I think it just makes you sharper in your craft, but that sleepy head, um, and then I have one called uh, I'm on Fire. It's with uh, Jamie Lynn Sigler from The Sopranos. She has a show out now. Yeah. Um, she plays my wife. It's a short film. Mm-hmm. It was directed by Michael Spitzer and written by Michael and David Stern. I'm like an abusive dad. It takes place in the 80s. It's a really, really powerful film. Really powerful film. Yeah. So uh, I'm blessed. You know, I got some really good. I like to do really quality stuff. I don't like to. Oh, and I have a film called Made in Mexico that Mario Lopez produced May 1st. It's going to be streaming on various streaming platforms where I play like a Mexican cartel guy. So for me now, it's more about showing the kind of actor that I am, that I'm not just one, you know, dimensional for me. It's about, and it's like, I find a lot of times when I take these uh, auditions for like bigger roles and bigger, like not bigger roles, films, you know, bigger budget films and more studio ish and Mm -hmm. studio type stuff. It's like I only get invited to these auditions if it's me playing an Italian. And it's like, yeah, that's great. Um, but, you know, it's like here comes the discipline, you know, because in some things you can get a part and you can make some money. But then it's like, what this, what is this going to do to me down the line? It's yeah. just going to further label me to like this is all this guy can do to where you yeah. want to like break out of that. But now it's too late. Now this is where you, the regret sets in. Like, damn, I wish I would have did it when I was like this age because then it would have kind of, and I think for me, it's a good chance to do that just because this is like a second coming of me because I was around, I went to jail, now I'm coming back with a different haircut, you know, just like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, yeah. <laughs> so I kind of want to do different things. Now. I want a different approach. Yeah. And I realized that the acting is not only important because I love to do it. Mm-hmm. It's also important because it's not telling people, but it's showing them what the beauty and the power of recovery is yeah. Look, because of my re because of my recovery mm-hmm. and staying on this path i have been able despite all of the turmoil and everything that i went through i was able to still keep this career going because and look i've had some success and people see that mm-hmm. and they look up to that because it's like wow you know it's powerful because now they realize you're a human just like them you did it. Why can't they do it? And then now that gives them hope. Now it's like, I do have a shot. Look, yeah. he's shown me. He's right in my face. showing me that I have a shot. So it gives them that. And it's like, and I thrive off that also because I know it's going to help the next guy. If I do something and I have the discipline and I get to this level, it's going to help that guy too, because I'm where he was or he's where I was. Yeah. So he knows now he can get there too. It's important. It works hand in hand. It's a beautiful thing. It really is. 
and I definitely don't want to mess it up this time it's very important it's like you you know you're on the right path this time it's almost like you're starting from scratch like you're you're going backwards uh, like doing everything the way like normal like actors do like right as a waitress i didn't do that right (laughs) i'm very smart of you to say that because it's exactly what it is the work i didn't do then i'm doing now or the work i was supposed to do to get to that level but let's face it that that role that character that's the role of a lifetime yeah. for an actor it doesn't get bigger than that yeah. you're the lead role in this film directed by your favorite an icon the best mm-hmm. a legend so yeah. all of this is going on in this film it doesn't get more special than that for yeah. an actor especially because the name Calogero, the sicilian upbringing it was just like special on so many different levels yeah and then to you know yeah, I was just definitely blessed. But it's like, after that role, where do you go as an actor? Like, what, after doing something like that, can really satisfy you? Not really sad. Not, not maybe not satisfy you. I but think, it's like, I think. Sorry, I think you have just a bigger purpose than just acting. I think you're like supposed to be a role model of talking to like kids and teenagers about how like you know, you can make the wrong decision by like doing, going this route or that route, you know? So I think your life experiences and you being so young and showing what happened to you in your scenario will be so helpful because you could just share your story and people will look up to you. People will listen to you because they're actually, uh, you know, they seen you being at the top. They seen you be young. You're were them you know so it's yeah, so they also helpful. saw you at a very vulnerable state yeah so like you know like you know so they know like it humanizes you like it almost because like when they're seeing you in these films it's like sometimes they feel like they can't touch you like wow this guy's yeah. on tv but then when they see you broken down and stuff like that it's it's only then where some people really resonate and you resonate with them because now it's like, wow, this guy really is a real guy. Like, look at him. He's broken down from, you know, he's over there. And now it's like, now I can really see like this guy. We're all human. We're all human. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. And then it kind of makes people, it encourages people a little more to want to reach out and to want to look up to those kind of things, you know, and to like, as the you know, to be able to come back and to be able to like get yourself out of that, that darkness. Yeah, so I think you, like, actually pursuing that more, I think would, like, it would just put you on a whole nother path of purpose and, like, legendary, you know? So you did the movies and all that. But this is actually what I think would, like, it's actually bigger than any of the movies, you know? Because if you can change all of these people's lives by just changing their direction, even if it's slightly you're actually changing people's lives for the better long term. So it's not just, you know, somebody watches a movie and they're like, oh, that was a great movie. Now you're actually like telling your story and they're just changing their whole life path. Like, imagine that, like how big would that be? I think that's like better than anything. Like, yeah, but you know what? Yeah, it, it may be better, but you know what? I just think I have a stronger case and a better sell. And what it's not like I'm selling something, but just being able to inspire people. Mm-hmm. I just think the acting helps that. Yeah. Because it's like, look, he's been able to extend his career, his acting career, because he's sober. 
something yeah. that he loves to do, he's still doing because he did what he was supposed to do. Yeah, I agree. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah I get, so I get like what hand you're saying. Yeah, that makes sense. So it's like showing like that you actually came back and you're actually doing better now because you're sober. Like, because I'm sober. So sense. whatever you were doing in your life before that you love to do, you can get right back to that. It's no one says it's going to be easy, but it's going to be definitely worth it. And it's not going to happen right away because, yeah. you know, but, but, you know, in life, things that bring us and give us instant gratification seldom lead to long-term happiness. You know what they say? Always despise the free lunch. Nothing is free. You don't get nothing easy. That's not the way life is. Anything, anything that's worth it anyway, anything that is worth anything takes time. That's it. You know, and your recovery and your sobriety and your well-being, and your peace of mind to be able to get that back. It takes time. Yes. You were one person, you became another person, but now you're trying to become that person again. It takes time. Little, I say to people like, think about how long it took you to make that mess. How long were you using? Huh? You were using for 11 years. Mm. Okay. You were using for over a decade and you think you're going to clean up an 11 year mess in three months. Mm. You're lucky if you clean that mess up in five years. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, when you clean up that mess, that will be the best feeling ever. Yeah. Because you'll feel so good because you'll know the intrinsic value that that would have. You'll feel so good about yourself to know as a human being, I was able to accomplish this despite all the adversity, despite everything else that was in my way and all the obstacles that were in front of me and that I was facing. Yeah. I was still able to do that because I stayed on the right path. I stayed determined. I stayed resilient. And that's what it's all about. And it's like, <sighs> yeah, it feels good. You know, like, yeah. I, you know what I mean? Because I like, think maybe you know, even now, like you're pretty much, I, I think you're around same age as Robert De Niro was when he did his directoral like debut. So what if. No, you I was a little bit young. I was a little bit younger. Yeah. Um, Cause I remember he turned 50 in yeah. August, August 17th of 1993, because yeah. I was there, I was at his birthday party. Yeah. So she so figured he was like 49 when he did the, the when he did the, uh, the film when we were shooting the film so in a couple years. more years you can do your directorial debut and you can like have another young guy that looks just like you and just pass it on forward you know and this time you got to make sure that that guy like you know you make sure he goes on the right path you know yeah yeah absolutely no yeah. but uh you know i had uh i had an idea actually being that the bronx tale is going to be celebrating a 30 year anniversary i want to you know like after doing sleepyhead and seeing what that took, uh, you know, having some, you know, a little more experience in, from bringing something from the ground up. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking like, you know, Terrell Hicks, who plays Jane in the film. She was also in Belly. I mentioned her. She's still a very good family. You know, she's still a good friend of the family. I'm friends with her, her family. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, like when we do like signings or appearances, or if I post a picture with her, I get like 30,000 likes, you know, it's yeah. like, and it's like people love to see us together. Yeah. After all this time, people love to see us together. Mm-hmm. So I just thought, you know, like it makes sense. Like why, why not, why not use what we have? Yeah. And we have like a recognized brand. It's C and Jane, one of the most prolific, you know, iconic interracial couples in, in film history. It's, yeah. You know, it's it's part of it's a part of film history. And I was thinking, you know since the Bronx Tale is going to be 30 years old in September of, of 2023, that maybe I could, uh, you know, I was, you know, I'm right now, you know, uh, you know, talking to screenwriters 
-hmm. I want to, you know, find the screenwriter because it all starts with a great script. If I don't have a great script, I would never make a film because then you got to do too much backtracking later on. When you have a solid foundation, a good script, it's like almost, it makes the acting easier. And it's like less stress and pressure to get big names because you want to sell it because now you have something that can kind of stand on its own. And that's when you have good writing. That's when you have the best shot of that happening. So that's why it's very important now. So like, you know, if uh, anyone out there, so, you know, I, I want it to be like some kind of like a modern day interracial love story yeah. with some kind of controversy. I don't know exactly where to take it. I have a few different ideas, but I just think that I'm not a writer. I think I can direct, I can tell a story, but I can't write a story. Yeah. And that's why I think I need a writer just to like maybe put certain things into perspective for me. Cause you know, sometimes like something is right here and you're looking at like just a little bit off to the wrong place. But if you just go like that, boom, oh, there it yeah. is. <laughs> I get it, I and get I think it. that's what a writer could do for me. I think yeah. if I sat down with a writer, once he gets me like a little information based on the way a script should be structured and all of that, which I kind of have an idea. I've read so many of them, but not from a writing standpoint, but, uh, I've spoken to Terrell. She's given me her blessings. And I think that's something that I really want to, uh, I would really like to do and try to release it right around when the film, hey, Bronxdale celebrating 30 years. Like, What better time? Yeah, you know what I, mean? I agree. I totally agree. So, so uh, one more thing, like where can everybody find you? Do you, are you like, I know you're on Instagram, like what other platforms uh, do you have? And like, where can everybody I'm find just you? Just on Instagram, believe it or not. I have a Facebook, but I'm never really on it. Yeah. Um, I do post some videos on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Go on Facebook. It's a, I go on Facebook. It's all my family. I see all family members. <laughs> I'll just right? add your link in the in the description so people can follow you and see like the Sleepyhead movie and all the yeah 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 yeah. Stuff. Um, yeah. yeah. My Instagram is Lilo L I L L O underscore Brancato B R A N C A T O Lilo Brancato. So okay. got it. All right. Thank you so much for doing this. And like, uh, I'm so happy. Like I got you on the show. Like I'm a huge fan and I'm so happy that you're like sharing your story and tell. And I'm a huge fan of you too. And I appreciate this opportunity. Thank Udo's. you. Thank you. All right. Thank you. No, I'm like so happy because I'm like, oh my God, like everybody needs to know like his story and what happened, you know, because everybody like dehumanized people so easily nowadays. And especially uh, yeah. if it's people Very on the easily. screen, they're like, listen. you know. Yeah, no, but like by no means am I a victim. You know, yeah. I made bad decisions. Yeah. And when you use drugs, stuff like that happens all the time. I'm yeah. just lucky I'm not dead. God, like we like we spoke about, God had something else planned for me. Yeah, exactly. But that doesn't mean that, you know, they're gonna, God's, you know, like, usually you die, you know? So I'm, I encourage kids out there to just like not make, like, it's never going to turn out good for you. Mm-hmm. There's no way you're going to use drugs and you're going to be able to tell a story that ends happily ever after you'll find me one person ever. So that's the moral of the story. There's nothing good. That's ever going to come out of using drugs. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. Udos. I appreciate All it. Right. And if you need anything, let me know. I'm here. So <laughs> likewise. Yeah. So thank you. I appreciate you. And I'll thank talk you. to you soon. All right. Thank you. Right, bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Good night. Bye-bye.